You may or may not have known this, but um, on Sunday, this last weekend, was a very special day uh, on both the Jewish calendar and also on the Christian calendar. On the Jewish calendar, we would know this uh, this day, the 6th of Sivan, or June 5th in our calendar this year, uh, as Shavuot, or uh, as, as part of what is known as the Feast of Weeks, uh, Shavuot meaning weeks. Uh, this is a holiday in Jewish tradition, and of course, scripturally, this is one of their holy feast days um, that commemorates a couple of things. Uh, in the first place, it is a commemoration of, of the day when Moses traditionally received the law on Mount Sinai from God. Not only that, but it also commemorates the reaping of the early, uh, the first harvest uh, of the season and this kind of thing. There's also built into this uh, all kinds of wonderful symbolism uh, imagery that is intended to be taken to help us see some New Testament truths uh, um, through the Old Testament symbolism. This is true not only of Shavuot, but also of other feast days, of course, Passover, um, 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 you know, the Feast of Booths and all these different feasts that we see in the Old Testament. Um, however, this particular one that I want to focus on today is known to the church uh, more commonly than Shavuot as Pentecost. And so this last Sunday would have been Pentecost Sunday, the day when we commemorate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on those early believers. And so uh, we're going to go ahead and read from Acts chapter 2. So why don't you grab your Bible, and I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2, and then we'll go ahead and dive into uh, a topic that I think is really important for believers, for the church by and large, certainly for you and I as believers. And this has to do with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So let me go ahead and read from Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost, starting first, uh, first verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that uh, that we hear each in our own language in which we uh, we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and uh, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? And others mocking said, they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let these uh, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, or nine in the morning. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and he goes on. He's quoting here from Joel chapter two, a passage that speaks of what things will look like in the last days. And generally, when we think of uh, Joel chapter two and this passage in particular, 
when we think of the last days, we're thinking of things that we see in the book of Revelation from chapter 6 through 19, uh, plagues and, you know, um, um, you know, um, uh, seals and trumpets and bowl judgments and these kinds of things. Um, however, there is an element there that is spoken of by Joel that is reiterated by Peter that is used to explain this event that takes place on Pentecost Sunday. Uh, and it is uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that marks the beginning of the last days. Now, you may have heard us say this before, but if not, What's important, one of the important significant things about this passage in Acts chapter 2 is that this marks the beginning of the period of time in Scripture that we would refer to as the last days. So in other words, it's not just happening in our day because we're getting very near the very last of the last days, but actually the period of time known as the last days began post-resurrection here on the day of Pentecost. But this outpouring of the Holy Spirit on this very day was something that Jesus told his disciples to wait for. As a matter of fact, I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke. We're going to jump around a little bit here today because I want you to see these passages. But in Luke chapter 24, we'll start there. Uh, Jesus is with his disciples after the resurrection. And listen to what he says. Uh, Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written uh, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Uh, interestingly, Jesus himself would say in John chapter 5 that you study the scriptures because it is in them that you think you have eternal life, but it is they that speak of me. Uh, and so the scriptures really are really fully about Jesus personally. But Jesus refers to this here when he talks about the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms all concerning him. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Boy, that would have been amazing. Now they begin to see the connections between all these things that they knew from the Old Testament that now are making more sense to them in the light and context of the person of Christ. Verse 46, Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Now, in the book of Acts, uh, we'll jump over here to Acts chapter 1 very quickly. We're going to come back to the Gospel of John in a moment. But in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is telling them this same thing. He's assembled with them. Uh, He's about to ascend to heaven. And in verse 8, he tells them. Now, they've just been asking, well, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And they're very excited about what's coming and all this kind of thing. But Jesus tells them it's not for them to know these times or seasons, but rather, verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then Jesus goes and ascends into heaven. So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, an incredibly significant day in the church's history. The Holy Spirit uh, is unfortunately, um, by believers, oftentimes sort of neglected, Um, A consideration of of him and the work that he does uh, is oftentimes set aside, sadly, because there have been many, many uh, false ideas, very many misrepresentations about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I'd like to just take a few minutes today to go ahead and talk about um, both the person of the Holy Spirit and his importance in the life of the believer. Uh, This is one of those topics that you can't overstate. Um, 
the Holy Spirit in terms of historic biblical Christian theology uh, is is uh, is the third person of the Trinity. Now, for those who are believers, this is something that we've likely heard in our churches over the years, but for those who are not believers, it's important that we understand that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, and we'll, we'll bear this out as we uh, open to further passages, that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about a force, a power, um, an, an inanimate thing that is at the um, uh, able to be used by believers or is sent out by by the Father in some way that um, he just uses like a, again, like the wind or like lightning or something like that. Rather, the Holy Spirit is personal. And he is, again, as, as Christian theology unfolds and explains, the third person of the Trinity. When I say Christian theology, I mean biblical theology. This is a truth that is surmised from a study of the comprehensive scripture. Um, and not just picking and choosing certain verses, as various groups try to do in, re- uh, in regard to the person of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is personal, and that he is in fact divine, in the same way that Jesus himself, the eternal word made flesh, is divine, in the same way that the Father is divine. But in Christian theology, the mystery of the Trinity is defined as being uh, one being, um, ultimately um, expressed in uh, ultimately existent, I should say, not expressed, but existent in three distinct persons: uh, Father, Son, or Eternal Word, and the Holy Spirit. Now, admittedly, the idea of trying to explain this idea of there being one being called God, Christianity is a monotheistic religion. We believe in one God. However, he is somehow self-existent within three distinct persons: Father, Son, and Spirit. This is a mystery. This is beyond our understanding. There are various analogies that get closer or further away in, in trying to express this idea, um, but there is uh, there is a very clear teaching throughout the scripture in regard to each of the distinct persons of the triune nature of God that both uh, clarify the deity, the personhood, uh, and the distinct works and responsibilities that that each seem to take on but yet at the same time never diminishing the fact that uh, that God is one, uh, not just in terms of purpose, but one in terms of being. This, is, again, is something beyond our capacity to fully understand. But this is clearly what Jesus himself taught, both about himself and about the Father and about the Holy Spirit. And, of course, in the New Testament, we see the developing theology of this as well. We see the presence of this concept throughout the Old Testament as well, all the way back in the beginning, all the way through the Scripture to the very end. And so... That being said, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about some force that is just sort of used and manipulated to accomplish purposes, but rather we are talking about a thinking personal person uh, that is the that is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And so um, I'm going to start by looking at a few passages here, both in regard to um, who he is and also what he does. And uh, along the way, we'll describe why it is so important for us to embrace the Holy Spirit both personally and in regard to the work he wants to do. If you want to turn to John chapter 14, we're going to look at a few verses. Now, of course, the subject of the Holy Spirit is something that fills volumes of books. We're going to try and talk about uh, this subject uh, really in in you know 15 minutes or 20 minutes kind of a thing. But But here we go. Bear with me on this. Chapter 14 of John's Gospel, in verse 15, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. This is the final discourse that he will have with them before he is ultimately arrested and crucified. And as we have often said when we come to these passages, 
Jesus is not wasting time talking about frivolous things. He's not talking about the weather. He's talking rather about the most important things. He is imparting to them information, understanding about things that are about to come, and also in particular a person who is going to come to them very soon. When we just read about both at the end of Luke's gospel and the beginning of the book of Acts. But here in chapter 14 and verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper uh, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, but I will come to you. So the concept of another helper who is identified by Jesus as the spirit of truth, someone whom the world cannot receive because the world neither sees nor knows him, but you and I as believers, and certainly the disciples then, do know him, and the Holy Spirit would not only be with them, but would also be in them. And so this person that is called the whole or the spirit of truth, whom is being given as another helper, the word helper there is paraclete, one who comes alongside. Uh, another is a term that speaks, uh, there's actually two terms that are used for the word another in, in uh, the New Testament. One speaks of a, another of a different kind entirely. Um, you know, I, um, I, I, I'm driving a car, but I need another mode of transportation. So this next thing is going to be an airplane or something like that. Something that is different. It's sort of in a category that is similar, but in this case, it is a very different thing entirely. Another word that is used, and the one that's used here, is one that is another, but of the same kind. Distinct from, but yet very much like. And that's what the Holy Spirit is referred to, is described by, uh, like, by Jesus. He says, I'm going to send you another helper, somebody who is distinct from me, but yet very much like me. Now, that statement in itself gives us a lot of insight in the Holy Spirit, which would clear up a lot of the confusion that often accompanies the teaching on the Holy Spirit or the uh, purported um, outworking of the Holy Spirit in various circles, things like the faith movement and, and some of the craziness that goes on there. When Jesus says, I'm sending another helper who is a lot like me, that means that when we want to know what the Holy Spirit is like, we can look at the life of Christ and we can get a sense of what the personality of the Holy Spirit might be like. In other words, if Jesus is not crazy going around doing crazy things, we would not anticipate that the Holy Spirit would be going around doing crazy things. Now that, of course, is an important concept for us. Because when we talk about the Holy Spirit, or when we would dare to talk about the Holy Spirit, I use that word intentionally because some people are afraid to talk about the Holy Spirit because they generally have this idea in their mind of some kind of craziness going on. That's not what we would expect from the Holy Spirit, nor is it what we see by the Holy Spirit in the Scripture. Uh, and so when we come to study him, we can start with the idea that if we are attracted to the person of Christ, we should also therefore be attracted to the person of the Holy Spirit. If the person of Christ intrigues us and beckons us to come and to know him better, we would expect the same from the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Uh, if Father and Son are to be known and to dwell with and to um, uh, and to seek to understand better, so then too should the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus begins to tell us about him uh, here in this passage and tells us that he's like Christ, he's going to dwell within us, and such. Uh, I'll also invite you to turn to chapter 16, starting in verse 5, where Jesus again refers to the Holy Spirit when he says, but now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. 
excuse me, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The helper who he has referred to previously, he will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. In other words, there's kind of a plan that is unfolding here. The person of Christ came and accomplished his purposes and is going to ultimately go to the Father. And when he does, he's going to send the Holy Spirit to the believers. Um, so, uh, I will send him to you, verse 8, and when he has come, he will, and now Jesus describes some of the job description that the Holy Spirit will embrace, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he is he will not speak of his own authority, but he, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you, and all things that the Father uh, has are mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so the Holy Spirit has a number of job descriptions here. He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He will guide us into all truth. He will speak of that which the Father has given him. He'll take of what is, belongs to Christ and give it and share it and disclose it to us. Again, the Holy Spirit is of supreme importance and benefit to believers. Um, in order to understand and illuminate the fullness of Scripture, the Holy Spirit wants to be our guide and teacher in this as we open the Word of God. Not that He gives us these crazy new interpretations of things, but that He helps us understand what the writers have said. Why? Because He, after all, as Peter would say, holy men of God uh, wrote as, and spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the author of the Scripture, He is, of course, supremely qualified to explain the Scripture to us and help us come into a deeper understanding. But of course, he brings conviction, he brings understanding, he brings illumination. He is uh, highly at work among the believers. Now, I mentioned, and I have mentioned a couple of times, and Jesus himself refers to the Holy Spirit in personal terms, but the Holy Spirit, again, is a person. He is not a different God. He is uniquely uh, part of this unique entity called God, this being called God, yet somehow fully understood and in and self-disclosed as existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I say self-disclosed because the scriptures help us understand this truth. And the scriptures are God's revelation, not only of things to come or rules and regulations or whatever kind of a thing, the law and such, but rather it is also a revelation of himself. He is making himself known and he has chosen to make himself known to us in such a way. Now, when it comes to our understanding of, of, the, of the nature of God, his deity and his triunity, uh, the fact that we don't understand how that can be is completely irrelevant. If God has chosen to make himself known this way, then that's who he is. Uh, in the same way that you or I, if someone gave a description of us to somebody and it was different than what we actually were, and we came and we cleared up and said, no, this is what I'm all about and this is what I'm like, who would have the right to do that? Well, I would, right? And you would. When it comes to God making known his own nature, his own personality, his own character, his own being, it is his prerogative to make himself known as he is. And he has chosen to let us know that he, in fact, exists eternally in three distinct persons, Father, Son, or you could say the eternal word, and the Holy Spirit. So let me go ahead and uh, speak to the, uh, um, the idea that not only did Jesus speak about the personality of the Holy Spirit, 
but extremely early in Christian understanding. In other words, uh, in the earliest time of believers after the resurrection, Peter himself is already disclosing this idea of the personal nature of the Holy Spirit. When in Acts chapter 5, there's this encounter where a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira owned a piece of property. Uh, and what was happening during that time was that because the church was generally comprised of outcasts from society, people that were rejected by Judaism and rejected by culture because they were embracing this Jesus, um, they had to rely on each other. And so people that had means were bringing some of their, you know, their, their, they'd sell their possessions, they'd give the money to the disciples, and the disciples would buy supplies and give out funds and such where it was needed among believers. And so there's this wonderful body element happening where the body was helping itself and helping one another. Well, in the midst of this, Ananias and Sapphira buy a piece of property. However, they give half of what they sold the property for, but they tell the, they make it seem as though or they tell everyone that they were giving the whole thing. And so this becomes hypocrisy. This becomes the one of the earliest examples or one of the earliest recorded examples of hypocrisy among the early believers. And so as this happens, Peter knows that this has taken place. Uh, presumably the Holy Spirit has told him about this because when they lay this uh, these proceeds at the apostles' feet, pr- making it seem as though they're giving all of it when in fact they're holding back some of it, Peter speaks up in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, of course, uh, Sapphira is not here at the moment, but Ananias is here. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? In other words, you didn't have to give any of it. You could give all of it, you could give none of it. It's entirely yours to do with as you please. However, you have given it to us under the pretense that you've given all of it to try and make yourself look good, is what's what's in view here. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived of this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, maybe you didn't catch that, but two places there along the way, Peter refers to who is the ultimate one offended here. First off, in verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Okay, well, again, the Holy Spirit, if he were inanimate, if he were just a force or an object of some kind, can't really lie to an object or a force or an inanimate object. To lie to something or somebody implies personhood. You can lie to me, I can lie to you, I can't lie to this phone. You know, I can lie to you through the phone, but I can't lie to the phone. I can't lie to this microphone. I can't lie to my Bible. I can't lie to the computer on my desk, uh, the books that are around me and that kind of thing. That's just not how it works. And nobody would ever use that language that way because it would make no sense. You can only lie to a person. And in connection with that, Peter then goes on and says that the person you've lied to is actually God. You've not lied to men, but actually to God at the end of verse four. And so Peter makes this very early um, statement in the history of, of, you know, right after the resurrection, Peter speaks and refers to the Holy Spirit as being personal and being divine. This is a very important point. And of course, this is just one of a number of passages where the personality and deity of the Holy Spirit ultimately are shown throughout Scripture. So the Holy Spirit's personhood. I'd also like to talk about the Holy Spirit's indwelling. Now, we read about this already in John chapter 14, where he talked about the Holy Spirit not only being with you, but being in you, the idea of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Well, when did this first ultimately take place? Well, it didn't first take place in the book of Acts. Actually, the very first example of this that we see in the New Testament takes place in John's gospel, chapter 20. This is after the resurrection, and Jesus is meeting with the disciples, 
And as he is meeting with them, of course, they are um, surprised when they see him. You know, when you put the accounts of, of his meeting with the disciples after the resurrection, you see that when he appears in the upper room and that, they are shocked. They think they're seeing a ghost in this kind of thing. Well, Jesus uh, dispels their fears. He says, peace be with you. He shows them his hands and his feet. And in verse 21, he goes on to say, peace to you as the Father sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is distinct from the wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. That is an empowering that we're going to talk about in a moment. This is actually the first time that the Holy Spirit now permanently indwells believers. By by definition, these disciples now become what we would describe as New Testament believers. They are Christians in the New Testament sense of the word. They are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is all part and parcel with the new covenant and this kind of thing. Um, And so the idea of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is fundamental to what it means to be a believer in the first place. Under the old covenant, up until the resurrection, um, the Holy Spirit did not indwell in this way. Uh, He did not take a permanent residence in believers. He would come upon, he would empower. Uh, There was all kinds of references to the Spirit of God at work. But this is now a uniquely new thing that takes place in a new covenant or under the new covenant. And so the new, if you're a believer in the New Testament, that means that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Uh, he is not only with you, but now he is in you. As a matter of fact, when Jesus spoke about that in John chapter 14, there is, it's, it's hard not to sort of see a connecting of the dots between what was and what is about to happen. Uh, he, will be, he, is, he will be with you, but he will also be in you. And that day now comes here in John chapter 20, verse 22. Um, Another place that's of importance for us to turn to in in understanding of this is actually in Ephesians. We're about to start Ephesians on Sunday mornings in a couple of weeks. And um, one of the great passages here in the early chapter, in chapter 1, is actually found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, in reference to the Holy Spirit uh, and his relation to the believer in a very important uh, sense. So let me read this here, starting in verse 13. In him, or in Christ, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, when you became a believer and you believed the word of truth, you put your trust in Christ, the one whom you believed in, the Holy Spirit not only came and dwelt within you, but he actually sealed you. You are now sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit until when? He's the guarantee of our inheritance. In other words, the Holy Spirit sealing us and indwelling us is the guarantee, the promissory that we will in fact inherit that which is uh, promised to believers. And this will ultimately happen all the way up to the point where the, the redemption of the purchased possession takes place. In other words, when you die, the rapture happens, whatever it is that you go to be with the Lord and inherit, you are sealed till that day. And so this is an important thing for believers. It's important not just from some theological, you know, just sort of high-minded theological sense, but in very real rubber-meets-the-road practical reality. The Holy Spirit seals us, which means we belong to him. We are sealed. We belong to God. And we will all the way up until we fully receive uh, the promise uh, in our redemption. And so this is something that we want to know and understand and trust in 
because the concept of being eternally secure in Christ uh, gives us a foundation from which to walk by faith with absolute assurance and confidence that we belong to him. Now, of course, you say, well, what about people that are just living in sin, but they say they're Christians and all this kind of thing? Well, Jesus said you could judge a tree by its fruit. If there's no fruit in a person's life, you ought not believe that they are a Christian just because they say they are. Lots of people in history have said they're Christians. There's a lot of people today that are complete false teachers, misleading, misled themselves, that say they're Christians, but they are clearly not. And so um, the fact that someone says it doesn't necessarily mean it. But you can tell when someone's a believer. Their life expresses that reality. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. That word behold means come check it out. Look, see, wow, check it out. Things are new. Uh, and so the idea is that when you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Now, of course, we're day by day further being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. But there is a fundamental difference between an unbeliever and a believer, and this finds its way out in the way a believer lives. Uh, It's not how we get saved, but it becomes an evidence that we are saved. And so um, we've talked about the person of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about um, how the Holy Spirit's indwelling. Let's talk just for a moment here about the power of the Holy Spirit and that coming and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes when we hear the outpouring, that's one of the reasons why sometimes people tend to speak of the Holy Spirit as it instead of him, because we think of like pouring water out or something like that. But we ought not make the mistake of thinking that when the Holy Spirit was poured out among among the believers and upon the believers, that he's an it, okay? He came upon believers. He was poured out upon believers and that kind of thing. The Holy Spirit, again, is not a thing. The Holy Spirit is a he. Well, um, as we read, we mentioned in Luke chapter uh, 24, verses 44 and such, uh, Acts chapter 1, wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. The idea that there is power coming when the Holy Spirit comes upon believers. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, and Peter connected that with, with Joel chapter 2, the idea of pouring out God pouring out a spirit where there would be uh, signs and wonders and visions and dreams and prophecies and things like this, we see that as the New Testament unfolds. Um, and so the idea of the power of the Holy Spirit being an element of our relationship with the Holy Spirit is something that we not only shouldn't set aside, but we should be careful not to be afraid of. Now, at this point, I want to interject something because this is the point where most people kind of tune out when you talk about the Holy Spirit uh, or the gifts of the Holy Spirit or any of these things that have to do um, with that power that comes uh, by him. And so I want to make sure we understand that there are many, many counterfeits out there. Generally, they're on, you know, um, purported Christian television stations or cable channels where you see people uh, screaming and shouting, waving jackets around and knocking people over in the quote unquote Holy Spirit. And um, people like, you know, um, claiming to speak in tongues and that kind of thing uh, or claiming to have done all kinds of miracles and those sorts of things. Um, there, There is legit expression of these things. I believe that to be biblically true in a biblically sound perspective. However, there are clearly massive counterfeits to these things. And of course, some would make a simple argument and say, well, why would you need a counterfeit if if there wasn't a real thing out there, right? Well, that that could be a valuable thing. My particular perspective on why I believe the gifts are still in evidence today is because there's no biblical reason to believe they ended. Um, You know, there's there's not a point uh, other than, you know, at uh, the end of... um, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, which, by the way, 
Um, we're not going to go through all of it because this podcast would never end. And we have gone through this before. Actually, I, I will say that um, on my uh, personal website at parsonspad.com, when you look under topical studies, uh, under Bible studies, topical studies, there's a study we did on the Holy Spirit at much greater length that you can listen to. And I'll encourage you to do that. And we went through things like the gifts of the Holy Spirit and all of that. But I would say that in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, in the midst of that discussion, Paul says that, you know, uh, faith and hope and love, the grace of these is love. Uh, there's a time when these giftings will cease and that kind of thing, when that which is perfect has come. Well, when that which is perfect has come is when we're glorified, when we're with him in his presence. And so there won't be need for these things on the earth at that point for the ministry of the church by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God and the elevating of Christ. But at that point, that won't be needed anymore because, you know, he'll have wrapped up his purposes. But until then, these gifts have been given, uh, gifts and also offices uh, uh, and such that, that have been given for various purposes and such as, as, as the Holy Spirit uh, sees fit. So when we talk about these giftings and these callings and these workings of the Holy Spirit, we want to remember that there are counterfeits out there, which, as always, is why we look to the Scripture to find out what it says about these things. We don't just—here's where the difficulty comes in, and this is at least one big reason why so much— uh, counterfeit when it comes to the Holy Spirit is allowed to persist. Because people, by and large, are very excited at the prospect of seeing God work. And if they see what they think is a miracle happen, or they see a legitimate miracle happen, um, or they see something seemingly supernatural, um, in their own faith, they feel like their faith is kind of boring. I, I go to church, I read my Bible, but nothing ever really happens. But here's something dynamic happening, something that's incredible and that kind of thing. I want to see more of that. And so at that point, a choice needs to be made. Am I going to allow scrutiny on this person who did this wonderful thing or said this incredible thing or claims to have the power of the Holy Spirit in action in these amazing ways? Am I going to test what they're saying and what they're doing by what the scriptures say or am I going to simply allow my being enamored by this to sort of cause me to set the scriptures aside and just sort of go with whatever this person says and does? This is the point at which a lot of error happens, and it's also the point at which a lot of error could be done away with if we would make the right choice and go to the scripture. Uh, we've been making a big deal uh, of the importance of going to the scripture really throughout um, our ministry, but in the last uh, uh, you know post and previous post and this kind of thing, we are making an effort to, to, to really drive the point that the scriptures have to be the foundation for our understanding of these things. If it is, then when it comes to the person of the Holy Spirit, we're not going to be afraid of him, and we're not going to be afraid to avail ourselves to him that he might do a work through us. Um, prophecies and those kinds of things, they're subject to the prophets, it says there in 1 Corinthians. Um, tongues, if someone speaks in a tongue, let there be an interpretation. If not, let them be silent. Right? There are, um, there are things that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts in place in his explanation of these things and their proper use, that all things might be done decently and in order. Why? Because it's important that Christ gets center of attention. The Holy Spirit's not going to draw attention to himself. As you see, mir uh, miraculous things done through the book of Acts, for example— uh, almost every single time that a miracle is done, it is immediately connected with the sharing of the gospel and the bringing of the gospel. And so the whole idea of the purpose of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus himself said, 
really revolves around bringing glory to him, making Christ made known and that kind of thing, not making himself made known. And so if you can, if, if you see a lot of attention given to the miraculous things itself, you can know that the Holy Spirit's not inspiring that. So if it's legit at all, you know someone else is inspiring it. If it's, again, even legit at all when that happens. But a legitimate expression of any gift of the Holy Spirit or any act of the Holy Spirit will have at its core the idea of making Christ himself known, not bringing glory to the, the purveyor, not bringing glory to the Holy Spirit himself even, but really bring glory to Jesus himself. So this becomes um, an important distinction when it comes to recognizing a legitimate expression of the power of the Holy Spirit. And it also should bring a measure of comfort that the scriptures do speak about our reliance upon, our need to be empowered by uh, the Holy Spirit of God. And so that being said, um, let me go ahead and close here at this point and, um, and encourage you to do a study on the person of the Holy Spirit. If he is neglected in your life, let me encourage you not to let him be neglected. Um, We are familiar with the Father, we are familiar with the Son, but strangely we are often unfamiliar with the Holy Spirit. And that's really too bad, and it's, 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 it's not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus spent a good amount of time among the most important things he shared with his disciples in those last moments or hours in the upper room, and among those things was a, dis- uh, a discussion on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. That discussion is one that we would do well to listen to or read, as it were, and to do a study on the person of the Holy Spirit, that we might invite him into our lives. He's already there, by the way. He already dwells within you as, as, a, as a believer. He's already sealed you until the day of redemption. So why not invite him to have freedom to to move us at times. Maybe he'll prod us to share the gospel with somebody. Maybe you'll find yourself in a circumstance where somebody is sick and you thought, oh my gosh, what do we do? And and you can't get a doctor there in time or some kind of thing. And you're not even thinking in these terms, but all of a sudden the Holy Spirit says, pray for him, pray for her. Maybe God will heal that person that day. Why should we doubt? I mean, this is what Jesus did in his own ministry. This is what we see among the believers in the New Testament. Um, why wouldn't we believe he might want to do that today? Now, let me I'm actually going to close on this thought when we talk about the Holy Spirit, because I I hope this sort of ties this together. If you're only looking for the Holy Spirit to work miraculously because you want to be wowed by the power of the Holy Spirit, let me suggest that your motivation is a little bit askew. The motivation behind the moving of the Holy Spirit is that people might be saved and encouraged, Um, not just to see something amazing happen. Um, Paul and Barnabas and you know, Peter and John, they weren't, they weren't doing, putting on a show to put on a show. They did something amazing by the power of the Holy Spirit in those moments in order that people might come to know Christ or come to know him better, be encouraged by that. Um, when Jesus would heal those who were looking to him as the Messiah in that, he was demonstrating his Messiahship by demonstrating that power. But he then left that power with his believers, uh, ultimately in the person of the Holy Spirit, to give us the ability to carry on that work. Now, sometimes God wants to heal and he wants to bring restoration in miraculous ways. Other times he doesn't. At the end of the day, we can say that because at the end of the day, his glory is what's in view, not just our, um, you know, because we got to see something. We want to see him glorified. And that means we submit to however it is that he wants to be glorified. But we ought never, and this is actually a discussion we have, uh, a good friend of mine and I have often. Um, oftentimes we are, um, we are, 
sort of praying for the Holy Spirit to do something. We're praying for a miracle to happen in someone's life. We're praying for maybe a healing or something. Um, but we don't really believe it's going to happen. And so we like to say at the end of things, but, you know, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And sometimes that's not a, uh, that's not said in faith. It's sort of said as a caveat. You know, I, I'm going to pray for this to happen, but I don't really expect it to. I don't really believe it's going to. We should never pray that way. We should never pray that way. Uh, it was Jesus himself who in the garden asked that this cup would pass by him, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, ask the Father, say, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To ask for the will of God to be done is not a cry of uh, a, a, a whimper of defeat. It's a battle cry. It's a cry of victory. Lord, I want you to be glorified in what happens here. And if the miraculous is what does it, then let your will be done here. If not, then let your will be done. Whatever it is, you have your way and I want your way to be done. Um, and so, if you're if you're someone who's prone to praying and saying at the end of it, you know, nevertheless not my will but yours be done because you don't really believe, let me encourage you to believe, to trust that God is not only capable of, but oftentimes willing and will be glorified in that moment through something miraculous. Let me encourage you to pray with faith, trusting, never with presumption. You're not telling God what he's going to do. He's going to do what's the right thing. And you wouldn't want him to do the thing that's not the right thing. But sometimes the right thing is bringing something miraculous to bear. And the Holy Spirit will work in that moment. But don't, don't pray lacking faith. Pray knowing that God has every means at his disposal. And in that moment may very well want to bring something miraculous to be. So I say all these things. Um, as we talk about the Holy Spirit, because my hope is that we'll take the fear away from the person of the Holy Spirit, that we wouldn't be scared to allow him place in our lives that reaches the deepest parts. Again, he already indwells us. He's already sealed us as believers. Why not invite him to work? Why not avail ourselves to him? Why not allow him to lead us to use us in any given circumstance. I think that's good. I think that's wise. I think that's biblical. So that being said, let me end with that thought. Like I said, we can go on for a long time on, on the subject of the person of the Holy Spirit, but I will once again recommend to you, if you want to go to my website, uh, we did spend, I think, six or seven studies talking about uh, the personal work of the Holy Spirit. So that's there if you'd care to listen to it or watch it. But thanks for joining today and listening and watching this. We just uh, are very grateful to be able to spend time in the Word together and and, uh, and uh, so hopefully we'll continue to be able to do this. So Father, thank you, Lord, for all of your goodness and grace. We thank you for the opportunities you give us to open the Bible and to understand more and more what it says about all the various things that you have given us in revealing your own nature and character in person, uh, or in today's uh, case, when we looked at the Holy Spirit. Father, just thank you for all of these things. And we thank you that in in every point throughout the scripture, we find that it ultimately paints a picture of, it draws us to, it helps us understand and even come to know the person of your son, Christ Jesus. And so we bless you and praise you that because of him, 
we have been saved. Through his death and resurrection, we have been bought and paid for. Our sins have been washed away. We have a future and a hope that is beyond our understanding. Uh, and, and it's just beyond anything we could ask or think. And Father, this is so freely given to those who so did not deserve. But that is your grace at work. That is your love. That's your mercy. And we thank you for these things. Father, we pray that you bless our times together in the days to come. And uh, and uh, and in all things, we just pray that you be glorified in and through our lives. Fill us, Lord, to overflowing. Overshadow us and let the Holy Spirit come upon us. That we might be used of you, empowered by you. That we might ultimately do the works that you lay before us that you might be glorified, that we might see people saved. Thank you, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.